G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas, and what idea could be more dangerous than a trans woman who, and yeah, I, I've already gone there, see, that's it, that is, I've already said the word, the tr- word has been triggered, <coughs> sound the alarms, call in the hounds, storm the castle, uh, the T word has been, will we ever call it the T word? I could imagine a day when we when we call it the T word, there are other words that I won't name, obviously, for obvious reasons, such as losing my job, that uh, that you can't say. I wonder if someday we'll say. Remember when we used to use the T word to differentiate between different types of women? But they're all women now. We don't need to differentiate between them just because of the nature of their privates. But now it's 2023, so I think I'm allowed to say, should a trans woman who was convicted of sexual violence when she was identified as male right, sexual violence against women in the body of a man that she was, but she wasn't a man, obviously, because she was a trans woman inside all along, but she had the physiology of a man. When she was a male rapist, no, not a male, but a, in the body, when she was a woman inside the body of a male, male-style, you know, physiology, and that male-style physiology was raping women, biological women, then after that, biological physical male who's actually a woman inside becomes a woman like a chrysalis butterfly out of a you know into a new realm then should that uh transgender woman if she hasn't had any biological changes done to her uh, after she's been convicted of sexual violence and is sent to prison go to a female prison See, that was an easy... See, it's so much easier now, isn't it? We used to just... We used to get so tied up and caught up and tangled in so many uh, confusing details about biological sex when there was this dogma of the biological binary of men and women. Now that we all understand that we're all gender fluid and gender is a spectrum and there's no such thing as biological sex, it's just easier all around to explain things like the previous two minutes of uh, conversation which is crystal clear to everyone. So that is one question that exists at the very, very margin, right, of the flashpoint, the culture war debate over gender and sex and feminism uh, and trans rights. Should a trans woman who was convicted of sexual violence, uh, who still has the characteristics, physical characteristics associated with males, be in a female prison or a male prison? There's a very good argument to say that in actual fact, in male prisons, trans women are are at incredible risk and are incredibly vulnerable. Trans women are already victims of violence at stratospheric levels in broader society. This is partly because trans women are are overrepresented in in dangerous professions like sex work, if only I could say it. Um, And... That only gets worse once you're into a, in a violent gang environment like inside a prison. So, you know, I, com- I completely empathise with trans activists who say it would be cruel to be putting trans women into a male uh, prison. But then I also understand women who are in prison and some of whom may not have had the best lot in life and may have been abused by men, not necessarily wanting to share that space with someone who in a previous incarnation was a male who was raping women. All of that is to say that this roiling thicket of nonsense that's just been regurgitated out of my mouth has been flattened in the contemporary discourse into a very simple binary of whether you are pro-trans or pro-women. 
Are you a, a, a feminist, which the turf side would say means that you have to be have to see things quite clearly and cleanly in on one side, or are you pro LGBTQI plus T trans T LGBT T's already in there, don't worry. Um, are you on that side? In which case, it, things are very simple from the other perspective. The person who has done a better job than anyone of actually untangling this knotted ball of twine that has just vomited out of my being is Megan Phelps Roper in her amazing podcast series, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. It's seven one-hour episodes published by the Free Press, which is Barry Weiss's journalism uh, adventure, and it's incredibly compassionate to both sides of this debate. I really went into listening to this uh, sort of dreading it a little bit, thinking that it would be a pro-J.K. Rowling puff piece, essentially, and a bit of an a bit, a bit unsympathetic to the trans side of the debate. But Megan is so good at understanding blind spots and thought silos and prejudices and just having compassion and generosity towards other people's ideas that she takes you through the whole landscape of essentially the transgender debates as they're manifested in this one individual who is probably the most polarizing individual in the world on this subject, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series. Megan knows what she's talking about because she herself was a member of the Westboro Baptist Church, who is that tiny, tiny church who you'll remember would picket the funerals of dead soldiers with placards that said, God hates fags. I mean, you know, it, even the leap of logic there is a bit weird. The idea was that those soldiers were fighting on behalf of America, and America is a fallen country because it's gone too far from God's will because it's allowing gay people to be gay. So even though the soldiers weren't gay... And even at a time when the military didn't allow gays to serve, they were still picketing the soldiers because they were defending a fallen country that was, I think that's the logic anyway. But they got a lot of press for their fairly vile uh, protests all over the place. Uh, you know, their response to the September 11 terrorist attacks, their pickets against homosexuality all over the place, the, the funerals of soldiers who died in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And... Megan's mother was the chief spokesperson for the uh, for the church. She's the granddaughter of the church's founder, um, uh, Fred Phelps, and she left the church. She was basically convinced out of it on Twitter, and she talks about that here, and we talk about what it was like to be in the church here and the similarities that she sees between the, the religious group th- groupthink of a group like that and the ways in which we're failing to communicate generously with each other today. Um, in the premium version of this conversation, uh, after I say goodbye to those of you who haven't bothered to get around to getting your own Substack subscription yet, uh, we just go on and on. And, and uh, yeah, if you get the free version, you've got a great episode, a fascinating conversation. It lasts for more than an hour. I'm not ripping you off. You know, this is exactly the content that you would have got before we even launched the Primo. But I just want to tell you, if you've ever been on the fence, if the reason you haven't subscribed is just because you haven't bothered getting your phone out of your pocket and trying, in the premium conversation, we continue to talk about Islam, radical Islam, the comparisons between uh, the left's failure to understand how to respond to Muslim theocracies and the left's failure to understand how to respond to the transgender 
debate, the similarities and differences between the transgender debate and the gay liberation debate, uh, trans women athletes and swimmers, which we don't even get to in the main section. Um, I was also talking to a friend of mine uh, recently. Uh, in fact, I think I can out him as Osher Ginsberg. I'm on his podcast, uh, or I was just on his podcast, uh, uh, famous Australian television presenter and, uh, and fan of this show, as I am a fan of his. And he was confessing that uh, on the air that he hasn't subscribed uh, because he's like, oh, I need to get into Substack. Yeah, I know I should get around to doing Substack. And I was like, hang on. You know you don't have to, like, get around to doing Substack in order to get my premium content. You don't need to sub- set up uh, an account. You don't need to create a profile. You don't need to do anything except enter your credit card information in one click, and then it will set up your own premium feed in one click. I mean, it may not be one, it may be like four clicks, but it's literally, it is not, there is no form, there's no drop down menu, there's no like, what's your address, what's your this, what's your that. There's no like, it's very simple. Uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen is the easiest place because then listen takes you directly to your own podcast feed. So if you're interested in the podcast and less in my newsletters or what else is going on in my life and find out about Josh and all this, just go straight to slash listen. Do it right now. Get your phone out. Uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen. Now is your opportunity because this conversation with Megan Phelps Roper is one that you don't want to miss the bonus portion of. So if you've ever been on the fence, go to slash listen. And all it is is what's your email and then select the tier and then what's your credit card information if you want the non-free tier or you can go to the free tier but then you don't get the the bonus section you do get some other goodies so it's not complicated you don't have to set up a profile i think there's a misconception here it's email address then credit card then get my own feed okay and if you have any any problems just email us and we'll sort it out for you but it is dead simple they've made it completely idiot proof um that being said It's such a joy to talk to someone as humane and as intelligent as Megan Phelps Roper. If you haven't heard The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, go and listen to it now and enjoy this conversation with Megan Phelps Roper. I love the uh, the series. It's so fascinating to watch your your work and life kind of evolve. I'm curious what what how did you what what was in the letter to to JK? What did you say? Um, I I told her about my background with the books, um, and because contrary to a lot of uh, more extreme or fundamentalist Christians, my family actually were huge fans. Um, my dad actually, who's a a an elder in Westboro Baptist Church. He was the one who brought it home, the first book home to me, um, and insisted that I read it. He'd read it and loved it, and he'd gotten it from his boss at this kind of big uh, national corporation that he works at. Um, and she had read it and loved it. And anyway, so it was like we passed it around. Like I would take it to the, you know, to the picket line and balance her, you know, those as the books got bigger, you know, I would be balancing <laughs> them on my picket signs as we were <laughs> out protesting yeah. in Topeka. It um, would serve so, as a decent weapon as well, the book. If you want. <laughs> or or we, we, we weren't into weapons, but it would, it was certainly a good, maybe like defensive maneuver for sure. <laughs> um, so I, I just, I use that as like kind of just a, a little introduction to my background and then said, you know, essentially that I was really worried about what so- what social media is doing to public discourse um, and kind of incentivizing extremes and amplifying some of our worst impulses. And um, I quoted the writer Marilyn Robinson, who has this great quote that I think is um, a very 
a huge understatement. She said the language of public life has lost the character of generosity. And, you know, I, mm. I am someone who has benefited profoundly from that generosity, both before I left Westboro and after I left. And I knew that something really valuable had been lost. Um, and I mean, I, I could go on. I, I said a lot yeah. of stuff. I think I said, I mean, I told her about noticing these two backlashes that she's faced, um, you know, originally back in the 90s when the, those books, um, the Harry Potter books came out and were, um, you know, ascendant in the culture. They became this huge target among fundamentalist Christians, largely. And, you know, obviously now from the progressive left. So these two backlashes from two very different communities and um, really wanting to make sense of them and try to understand where people are coming from. Um, and yeah, I mean, just again, knowing the value of real good faith conversation and that I felt that it was important to try to find a way to achieve that in this conversation around sex and gender, which it, you know, it has just seemed impossible over the past yeah. several years. Did you get the sense that she knew your story? Um, she told me, yes, that she had actually read my book. She'd gotten it as a uh, gift um, the year that it came out. Yeah, when, yeah. When you're hitting someone up if they already uh, appreciate your work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's, you know, is one of the things she said at the end of the show. Um, you know, she thought that we could have a conversation that interested her. Um, mm. And... I mean, it's a, one thing that struck me, and, and I hope you'll get a kick out of the fact that I was actually wandering around uh, Marrakesh, Morocco, while I was listening to the podcast. I always like <laughs> it when people uh, send me a text and say, oh, I was listening to this episode with so-and-so while I was in Tanzania. It's like, <laughs> very um, cool. Yeah, and I was, uh, and I, what I was, when you say generosity, it's, it's interesting, because I, I, I must say I went in with some trepidation thinking, this is going to be a takedown of the trans crazies, which is going to be quite predictable and it's going to be how, about how J.K. Rowling is persecuted and, and it, it's not that. It wasn't. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of generosity to both sides in this and a lot of understanding and compassion from her as well as, but, but largely from you, I think, in the way that the, that the series is, is structured. And just one thing I want to touch on so that I make sure that we do is the history of women's rights that J.K. Rowling's thinking is coming out of. You do a very good job of kind of taking us back and plotting what it was like quite recently for women for a very long time, like the Reclaim the Night marches and the evolution just within my own lifetime that I hadn't really been... Fully conscious of as being a, as being a backdrop to this conversation, how recent it is that mm -hmm. women have kind of had a right to conceptualize themselves as a group worthy of protection. I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, and going back, I mean, we we did the, a similar thing with Christians in the nineties. It it wasn't nobody. I think featured in this show. I, I would hope nobody feels that their positions were straw manned or their concerns dismissed. Like we were really trying to understand where people were coming from and the experiences that shaped the opinions that they brought to the table. Um, and that was really fascinating for me too, to go back, um, you know, to like the seventies. And I mean, and also just to realize, think about like title nine here in the U S that was like 50 years ago. Um, yeah, explain title nine to non-Americans. Um, it's, it's basically, um, this, 
it, it brought equality to um, women in uh, American educational contexts. Um, so you had to, like, so for sports, sports, for example, I think that is that's the you had to. Um, gosh, we should just <laughs> we should just look this high. I've been. <laughs> it's so funny. ChatGPT can't answer. Really, prohibits answer. Prohibits sex, including pregnancy, sexual orientation, and gender identity is is what it says now. Uh, prohibits sex uh, discrimination in any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So it's usually used in the con. I mean, here in the context of when it's talking about sports, you can't. You, you have to give. Um, these opportunities to women as well, essentially, um, right. which those those rights were not guaranteed um, mm. for a long time in this country. Yeah. And again, so that's only fifty years ago. So when you see the kind of you know battles that that women are, you know, part of the reason that this um, conversation I think has gotten so heated is that that people feel like so much is at stake, and you know, again, feminists like rolling see the fact that, you know, women all have only recently gained a lot of protection and a lot of um, cultural understanding to the kind of battles that they were, you know, fighting. Um, and then now to sort, sort of having the idea of having patriarchy sneaking in through the side door is how many um, women have, have put it to me. Right. Yeah, and I mean, quite apart from Title IX, just the fact, I mean, the the show does a good job of articulating what it was like as recently as when you and I were born about to to be a victim of male violence as a woman and have the police constantly asking questions about what it is that you were wearing and what it is that you were doing and dismissing your concerns if you were a domestic violence survivor like in all kinds of supposedly civilized countries like the UK and US and Australia you basically you didn't have a shot at 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 escaping a violent or manipulative relationship you know the man's word was was taken as gospel. There are all these very recent reforms that have been hard fought for after centuries and millennia of uh, of an imbalance of, of a sexist imbalance that have just been achieved. And mm-hmm. there's this kind of sense of exhaustion that that uh, your guests articulate that like we've just reached this point where for the first time in human history, women's concerns are being taken seriously, and women can't just be the plaything of men. And then our right to access, for example, you know, rape crisis shelter centers where only biological women know that they'll be safe among biological women, women is now being undermined. Uh, where, what do, where do you go? How do you, how do you kind of quarantine that concern from the concern that transgender activists and their supporters have that that's a smokescreen for oppressing trans people? Um, I'm not sure quite what you mean by quarantine. <clears throat> well, I guess how do you how do you sorry, make? By the sure... way, I am getting over some pneumonia here, so so I'm sorry oh, about no. that. I'll try to... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear it. Uh, by quarantine, I just mean allow that allow it to exist. Allow the allow the. Here's a simpler way of putting it. It can feel like these concerns about women's rights are largely abstract or philosophical or ontological. Like they tell a big narrative story about women's rights, but the trans community will say it's a vanishingly, vanishingly small number of cases of cisgender males posing as trans women in order to get access to women's spaces. Mm -hmm. And so the extremely rare instance of that is 
not worth getting so upset about. You're actually getting upset about almost a, yeah, like an ontological idea of womanness instead mm-hmm. of what's actually happening on the ground. Well, I mean, I, I've heard from a lot of um, feminists like Rowling that it's they don't they don't see it in those terms. It, it's not. It's a very real. It's a very real fear. It's a very real experience that a lot of women have had as survivors of, you know, domestic violence or sexual assault, um, like like Rowling has had. And so, <clears throat> it's not always. It, the, I guess the assertion isn't just that cis men will take advantage of these um, uh, of these, you know, essentially opening up of women's spaces to be, you know, open to to transgender women, for instance. <clears throat> and so it, it's the reality of male violence. They don't they don't see it. People like Rowling don't see it as like a, a way of targeting trans women or trans people. And, you know, she has expressed support for trans people, um, including trans women, and recognizes that trans women are also victims of male violence um, and also need to be protected. Um, but they don't see it as an, like, as an ontological concern. They see it as any time you are opening up these intimate spaces, um, if, unless there are safeguarding procedures, you are truly and in real physical space opening up the possibility of a violence like that is their concern but a lot's um, riding on that qualifier unless there are safeguarding procedures because my understanding of the gender critical feminist point of view would be that regardless of any safeguarding procedures like women with penises should not be in rape crisis shelters um i i think i, I think a lot of um gender critical feminists do hold that view um there were different moments where I've heard people, and, and I, I'm rolling, I think, is one of them, where she was basically saying people who have um, taken, well, you said, you know, women with penises. So if, if you have had surgery or hormones, she used hormones as another qualifier, um, you know, potentially that would be fine for them to, you know, they, they would not see that as, as much of a threat because they have taken steps to medically transition and alter the risk profile, essentially, I think is how they would put it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Because, I mean, mm. feminists like, when I say feminists like Rowling, it's like, it's, there are people who broadly support LGBT rights and LGBT people. Like, again, it's, it's, at least as they express it, it is not something, um, and obviously there are gender critical feminists um, that are much further to the right and much more like would draw the boundaries much more harshly than Rowling would. Um, but again, it's 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 a matter of trying to find where those lines are um, and rather than a matter of trying to um, delegitimize trans identities altogether. Mm. It's a tricky line, isn't it? I mean, for, for sure. I wonder, I wonder how you feel that. She wrestles with that. There's a, you know, the trans person says, it all sounds very nice to say that you support us, but you hold these other beliefs. But that sounds a bit like, you know, anti-gay people saying, you know, love the sinner, but hate the sin. Or, you Mm -hmm. know, every bigot makes an excuse about caring about the sweet, gentle, you know, Mm -hmm. individual who has been waylaid and misled by this bad ideology. And if only we could steer them back and bring them back into the flock, then you know, things would be, mm-hmm. would be better. And that's usually yeah. used as an excuse to, for bigotry. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Rowling would say any of that kind of thing about 
you know, tr- about trans people. I mean, she, she talked about trans friends that she has. Um, but I'm, I mean, obviously that's also a trope. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, some of my best friends. Yeah, for but sure. I, but, yeah. But I, I, I'll give her a pass on that one. Yeah. I, I mean, so one of the, it was really, you talked about how hard it is. It, it is a tricky line there. That's the whole, it's part of the whole point of, I mean, one of the huge things that we're trying to get out in the show is that, that they are hard questions that, that there is one bias that I share with Rowling and that is the need to have real good faith, civil conversation, um, about these, um, about these ideas, about, you know, the, the specific policy questions. We didn't really try to do that so much in the show because I don't think that's, that was my role. And I don't think I, um, necessarily qualified to do that. It was really in this case about trying to help people understand where the other side is coming from. So kind of a, a first step maybe down that path. But there was a, an interesting exchange I had with um, Helen Lewis, who's a journalist at The Atlantic, yeah, who talked she's about... on a previous episode of this show, if people want to look it up. She's yeah, fabulous. Yeah, she is. Um, and she talked about, you know, like all of the reasons, like why, for instance, you know, women... Uh, and gender critical feminists specifically are concerned about trans women in women's prisons. Um, and she talked about, you know, the, the risks of having, you know, especially somebody who's been convicted of um, like rape or sexual assault or some kind of sexual violence being housed against women being housed in a women's prison and the risks that that posed to other, um, other women in the prison. Um, but I asked her what what is the you know best good faith argument on the other side, and she said it's it's that um, trans women are very highly at risk in men's prisons, and so she, and she described this kind of um, the the way that the UK has come down on that question is you know if you have a gender recognition certificate um, if you have not been convicted of a violent crime. Um, then the presumption is going to be that you are going to be housed in the women's prison because, again, the the risk to other inmates um, is deemed to be, you know, far less. Um, and if you don't, if you, you know, do as as some have done, like in the process of a trial and you, you know, transition then, um, essentially it's – and especially if you are convicted of a violent or sexual offense, then you will be housed in the men's prison. So it's it's a way of trying to – thoughtfully draw lines in a way that protect as many people as possible. Um, and I think it's a really, it's a, it's, they're not simple questions. Mm. And I think, I think sometimes when we feel like there's a lot at stake, um, it, that we kind of feel compelled to dismiss the, like our, our power is in dismissing the concerns of this, uh, of the other side and, mm. you know, using this move of kind of accusing them of, of bad intentions. And sometimes, you know, maybe we truly believe that they do have bad intentions. Maybe they've done things that show us they have. But in this case, I think if you listen to the show, you hear from a lot of different people. And I, I think that, again, really trying to grapple with what they actually believe and, and what their positions actually are. Um, I think that's, I think that's the best tool we have in a pluralistic society to find a way forward and through these very thorny questions. One of the impediments to that, Megan, is the fellow travelers who one picks up along the way, uh, on one's journey. And I think this is a huge liability in this debate as well. Because as you say, these questions aren't simple, and yet they're increasingly treated as simple by people who regard themselves as being allies of someone who might have a, a more complex or nuanced view of things, like J.K. Rowling. Um, 
you know, I've just experienced so much uh, bigotry from and hatred from supporters of her and from the other side as, uh, as well, such that how does she deal, do you think, with the kind of the sense of like stop helping me on on online like stop because there's a it's a whole co- cohort of people who genuinely believe that there's no such thing as trans people this is all a bit of a fad there are deranged people who are mentally ill who have uh you know ha- who have some kind of uh, fetish or something which which translates as chan- transgenderism but these people are just not convinced that that's a legitimate thing and they think that JK Rowling is on their side yeah, it, it's it is really interesting though cuz I mean over the course of um reporting for the show I've actually seen a, a lot of people who initially seemed to be huge fans of Rolling over time um have turned against her because she doesn't go as far as they do and they they see her as sort of um letting in, you know, in her you know, in the way that she talks about supporting trans people, she is uh, affirming an ideology that they think is evil in its entirety and cannot be, um, you you can't essentially take any single part of it and affirm that without swallowing the entire thing. So they have now turned against her. Um, So I I guess it it depends on who you're talking about, but I've actually seen the opposite happening where because she hasn't gone as far as they have, she is seen as kind of a betrayer in some of these. And maybe I'm just too, like, very much, I'm too online. <laughs> I, I've been too online on this uh, on this topic for, you know, it's, it was a little over two years ago now that, that I first got a call from my friend that sort of set this whole thing in motion. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's been really interesting to watch it unfold um, and really disturbing in some ways to watch it unfold. But I'm actually, you know, feeling a lot more, a lot more hope now. Because it seems Why? like things are, um, I've heard from so many people, um, you know, I, I expected a, a huge amount of backlash, um, and, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of hate, like you, you can't look at this conversation for very long without realizing that, you know, it, it's eventually going to come for you if you, if you speak publicly on it. Um, and there has been some of that, but far less than I anticipated and far more, you know, people on all sides of the conversation, um, trans people who oppose rolling, trans people who support her, um, you know, people on the left and on the right. And, you know, and essentially all saying, wow, I'm so glad that somebody tackled this. I'm so glad to understand the issues. It's way more complicated than I realized. Um, I, I can see now, I can understand the other side better Um, so many people, um, who, who told, you know, they told me that essentially they supported Rowling's position largely unquestioningly heard episode six, where we feature two, um, trans people who have been, you know, critical of JK Rowling, um, and said that they were really challenged by it and that they understood again, a lot better, um, than they did based on the kind of, um, you know, generally often hyperbolic, sometimes violent rhetoric, on mm. places like Twitter. Um, mm. And so like, th- I think so many people are really eager to have the conversation. They, th- I think things, you know, reached, you know, reached a point of, of such extreme toxicity and chaos that 
people are, are, I think they're tired of it. I think they, they want something better. Um, yeah. And that gives me a lot of hope. All you need is 7 billion people to listen to the podcast. And uh, um, <laughs> I wonder how you think that, the, that those people who are hungry for a more sane conversation wrestle control away from the people who, who aren't. I mean, I'm, so let me, here's, an exa- here's one example, right? I have been one of the few journalists in Australia who has touched this subject publicly and I've interviewed the head of the Psychiatric Association in Australia who was airing some concerns about paediatric uh, transgender affirming care, saying that you know physicians and therapists should be able to ask about other things that are going on in a in a young person's life uh, that might be contributing to their gender dysphoria, and they felt that there was a, a, a bias against their doing that. And needless to say, that led to me having to waste an afternoon uh, responding to complaints from my bosses at the public broadcaster. I mean, not from them; they were they were good and they were supportive. Mm. And but you know, from the public, because there's a whole industry of people who are pouring over every single little thing, and we'll just throw such a deluge of of tiny things that you got wrong. Uh, you, know, mm-hmm. you, talk, you talk for a half an hour in live television, there are certain things that, you know, you're not going to get absolutely perfect and they'll just pick every single one and require... Yeah, you can't do like I did and Google that Title IX law. Yeah, that's wording. right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so they just sort of flood the zone and they know that all, they're, all they're trying to do is just raise the cost for journalists to, to broach the subject because they don't want there to be a conversation uh, mm-hmm. about it. So then... You know, my I'm married to a guy. We have kids. We have twins. Uh, he's just written a memoir, which is popular here in Australia. And uh, there was some piece about it that talked about his postnatal depression. Because after we had the kids, we moved to Australia. He's American, mm-hmm. uh, and had a, he had a really tr- rough trot with his mental health. And then I got a deluge of hate tweets from I don't want to call them turfs, but you know who we're talking about, like people sort of trans very 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 feministy feminists who don't really believe in trans people who would now on my back about well there's no such thing as postnatal depression in men because natal means womb and men don't have wombs what you were feeling was uh the fact that you will never be mothers and that you your children will always lack uh having a mother and that you can't possibly that oh, your poses who are pretending to to you know that you're ruining these children's lives for your own selfish desire to, to have kids, and that you, you're just suddenly re- you're realizing the depression is you realizing how you'll never be a woman. And I'm like, hang on, neither of us are gender fluid or trans. Like we're not trying to be mm-hmm. women. I don't think these people would be speaking that way face to face. I'm almost I'm almost inclined to invite one of them on the show. Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm I don't think they would be speaking that way before the transgender wars, right? I don't, I'm not even sure they'd be speaking that way 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, y- your question about, you know, how do we, how do we essentially make space for the conversation when there are people who just want, are dedicated to try, uh, to trying to stop it. Um, and for me, part of it is, it comes down to recognizing that I actually think it's it's quite a, a relatively small number of people who are actually dedicated to that proposition. Um, and one of the kind of uh, epiphanies I had while doing the series was how, you know, because there's this moment in episode two where we kind of go back to the 90s and we're examining what was happening in the culture at the time. And one of the major shifts in the 90s was the, the 24-hour news cycle, um, you know, that becoming... You know, so it's and, and we, you know, thinking about that in terms of this 
technolo- technological shift of the last, you know, 10, 15 years of uh, social media and realizing how both of those um, technologies, uh, there are ways to that you can game the system, essentially. You can make it seem like way more people believe a certain thing because those messages get amplified um, unnaturally. And mm. that's that was true in the 90s of my family. You know, Westboro is a, a tiny group in the middle of this country. Um, it's about, you know, 80, 80 people approximately at any given moment. And that's like the, you know, old people all the way down to the babies. So it's actually not that many people. And we got a massive just massive amount of media attention yeah. everywhere we went because we were using these incredibly provocative um, signs and incredibly provocative language. And we were giving the impression that there were, you know, that there were people all over the country who hold these, you know, very extreme hardline views. And people would later find out that it was this tiny group of less than 100 people and be like, you know, holy hell, like, how, how did we... How did we, you know, essentially it was, you know, I, I describe it in my book as this, you know, realizing it's kind of this symbiotic uh, relationship where, you know, we are getting, we're getting attention and we are giving, you know, clicks essentially mm. um, and views to, you know, these media outlets that were covering us, um, again, as if it were this massive, important phenomenon. Mm. Um and so I think a similar thing is happening today where what it's, it's you know, and, you know, people like Tristan Harris, you know, the former Google yep. engineer, um, you know, a lot of a lot of technologists talk about this, you know, that that in the way that the algorithms um, amplify, you know, he talks about people think of, you know, these things, it's like social media is a mirror and he goes, and really what it is, is an amplifier. Um, and it's the things that outrage us the most tend to get the most attention. And so I guess all this comes back to, the kind of people and and that that kind of attempt to use um, social media, you know, if you just, you know, as you said, like if they're calling your employer and making it seem like a ton of people are really angry, um, it, you know, it can, it can it just gives, I think, it tends to give a false impression, what is often mm. a false impression. Sometimes it's real. Sometimes, you know, it really is a whole bunch of people who are really angry. But often it's a relatively, you know, very small number of people and accounts who are engaging this behavior and trying to make it seem like it's it's a much bigger phenomenon than it is. And and again, for me, when we first started this two years ago, like I, I took it took me some time um before I actually um agreed to host the show. Um because I, you know, I I, I knew that given I, I don't come to this conversation, you know, clean, if you will, because of my background at Westboro, like I, I knew that the accusation would be like that I hadn't really changed, that I had just traded homophobia for transphobia and, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I really took time to talk to a lot of people that I trust. Um, mm. And um, I guess all of that to say, like, when when we actually did finally um, publish the show, I was uh, amazed at the number of people and the kinds of people um, who come to this from such different life experiences, um, who were so happy, so happy that somebody was, um, that trying to cover it in a way that really humanized, um, these two sides. And I say two sides, that's a huge oversimplification, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, trying to humanize these people to to one another. Yes, exactly. Because, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that, that is, that is super interesting. Uh, I mean, so then who, how should we have responded to Westboro Baptist Church in the media? Well, <laughs> um, 
That's a good question. I mean, there there were certain instances, I think, that, you know, that were maybe newsworthy, but for the most part, so many of the things that we did, I mean, there were there would literally be like three or four or five of us in a given place. Um, and and sometimes we would choose not to go and protest somewhere because we had already completely, as you said, like flooded the zone with all this media attention. Um, I mean, you know, now, you know, looking back, I, I, I there's part of me that wishes there had been far less coverage of those things. But I, I've also, I mean, I've also heard from a lot of people like that there was a lot of good that came from that. It kind of, um, highlighting Westboro in some ways, the good things that came from that were, for instance, taking people who were much more mild in their, you know, relatively mild, I was about to say condemnation of gay people, um, and kind of, showing like this is the natural end to the kind of rhetoric that you're using yours is you know slightly more palatable but ultimately you are still condemning people and and dismissing their experiences and sort of assigning all kinds of um mm. bad motives to them and so it really Westboro actually ended up pushing a lot of people um you know into the camp of supporting gay people um so there was good that came from it as well um but there's also a huge part of me that, you know, when I think about the individuals, you know, that, that we targeted, um, and especially the protests that, that we conducted at funerals, um, that I, I, I am filled with regret and shame over, over those things. And, you know, I, I wish there was a way that I could go back and un undo that. Um, mm. but I mean, again, part of, and I, I no, we can't blame you know, we can't blame anybody else for that. I, I will say that the, the media attention was certainly a huge part of what, you know, incentivized us to continue those things because it was so outrageous um, and it did get a lot of attention. But that was, a, you know, obviously totally, we, we bear the full responsibility for that. I just see how the dynamic works in inside the media and it's, there is something broken about it, uh, the the amplification machine, you know, which in social media is a mindless algorithm that is uh, that is just prioritizing likes and clicks and shares and comments, uh, and in the mainstream media is a kind of a a mind virus, a way of doing things like a bias towards novelty and uh, and extremeness, uh, a bias towards the sexy story, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, you guys were providing a perfectly sexy story and. Uh, you're right that the consequences of individual journalists making individual decisions about, well, we're not going to not cover the fact that these, you know, whack jobs have been doing these horrendous things in this, in the, at this funeral. Like that's a story. Mm -hmm. I get that instinct. But when you multiply that hundreds of times across, you know, news affiliates all over America, and then it gets picked mm -hmm. up even, I mean, I remember you guys in Australia when I was growing up, you know, reports of these, these religious people picketing these, funerals mm -hmm. and it it's it needs both it needs a new algorithm on the social media side and it needs some kind of a new ethos on the journalism side to put more of a public interest test before mm -hmm. reporting on things and to think i mean and just perspective being, yeah yeah i mean cause yeah. again it's such a small number of people um and the, again the, it is wild how much attention we got and honestly i mean as somebody who grew up in that environment the fact that we got so much attention um, and like it, it absolutely played into the image that I had of 
my family as, you know, this sense that we were the ultimate arbiters of divine truth. And, you know, this larger than life entity, like it was, it was so outsized that it, it absolutely, again, played into my sense that God was with us and, you know, causing our efforts to prosper and all these things. Again, I'm, I'm not blaming any, any individual or any particular thing, but I, I do think the incentives are, are off. Definitely. I mean, the, the size thing is, is tricky though, because if something very unusual and bizarre is happening, it doesn't really matter that it's only happening to a few people. You know, if, uh, Mm -hmm. if a small plane just spontaneously combusts when it's taking off from an airport and it only kills the 18 people on board, we don't go, well, it's mm-hmm. 18 people. It's not a lot in for the sure. grand scheme of things. For <laughs> sure. For That's sure. a story for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and ultimately, like... doing something... <laughs> what were you going to say? I was going to say, like, you know, obviously at certain points, the church was absolutely doing things that were newsworthy. So, for instance, in 2011, um, when there was that... The, or 2010, 2011, when there was the U.S. Supreme Court case um, that the church won, um, that was a major, you know, First Amendment victory, Um a major first amendment case in this country. This um, was giving the church the right to picket funerals. Yeah, essentially, or, it, it was it was based on a, a protest, um, and and basically said that that our activities were were protected speech. We were standing on public sidewalks holding signs um, about you know publicly important topics, um, and it was protected speech, even though it was cruel and you know otherwise. Um, so some of those things clearly were newsworthy, but. Again, the amount of attention that we got for a random protest on a Tuesday afternoon or something, like, um, probably mm. not all of those were essential. Anyway, it's interesting. I'm- yeah, it's interesting also that you say that, the that you know, one good thing that could have come out of that media amplification of the Westboro Baptist Church's activities is that it made more mild homophobes realize how noxious the hippie the ideology that they were in is and yeah. may, have, may have moderated them because mm-hmm. this is the same dynamic that, we're seeing play out in the trans debate and in your podcast in the sense that I do think that, as I said, I don't think that that those women who were texting me about us just tr- being wannabe women who are trying to have wombs would have done that if they didn't felt that feel that they are hunkered down in a, in a corner under attack and that womanhood is being besieged. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they, the, the more extreme voices on the, trans activist side are radicalizing women who would otherwise be winnable over and the most extreme voices on the transphobic side are radicalizing people who who would otherwise be moderately sympathetic to their positions and this is a an extremification dynamic that I mean, I'm glad that you're doing the work that you're doing and I'm proud of the work that I'm doing and trying to have conversations that sound more reasonable and sane to people and win over that middle Mm -hmm. but i wonder if you have any ideas about turning down the volume on the sides that are just activating the other side and alienating them instead of winning them over um i i mean there's there's a lot of things i mean just again modeling the kind of conversation that that and it's not like we're just excluding those more extreme perspectives We're, we're addressing them but again we're putting them in a context of but here, here are reasonable people like who are clearly trying to come at this in good faith and to really understand where the other side is coming from. Um, so I think part of it is modeling. Um, part of it, you know, I, I like I said in that letter that I wrote to J.K. Rowling initially when I talked about how what social media is doing to public discourse. You know, for 
for years after I left Westboro, I and I, I mean, I still talk about how the role that Twitter played, the essential role that Twitter played in my de-radicalization, because that was where I was exposed to people who were able to have those conversations with me, you know, to, to ask me questions and to really understand where I was coming from. Um, but, you know, I, I understand now that experiences, that experience is pretty unusual. Um, and for a lot of people, social media has the opposite effect. It has that radicalizing effect. And, you know, this is actually one of the things that we covered in, in episode three of our show, this kind of that same kind of radicalization feedback cycle. Um, and, you know, the, the two platforms we talked about in episode three were, were Reddit, which is like anti-sensitivity, extreme anti-sensitivity uh, culture, and then Tumblr, which is extreme sensitivity culture. And, and so like when understanding that, you know, feedback cycle, I'm, I'm not exactly to the point where I think, you know, people should generally, you know, opt out of social media. I, I definitely have friends who... Oh, I'm there. <laughs> who thinks that is the, who think that, uh, that's the way, uh, that's the way forward is to opt out of that conversation and to have them, you know, as much as possible in real life or in these kind of longer mm. form conversations like we're having now. Um, and then also, it, you know, in just making things like, like we tried to do with witch trials. Um, and so, you know, I, I think all of those things are, are, you know, possible ways forward. Has there been a backlash to the show? Um, there's definitely been criticism, but I wouldn't say, I mean, yeah, I, I just, I didn't, I have not experienced the kind of, you know, mass hate campaign that I was afraid of. Um, That's and, fantastic. Yeah, it, it's, it That's, really and, and is. And weird, like, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's weird that someone hasn't just trolled, trolled through all of the episodes, picked out the bits out of context that make it sound that sound like you're more extreme in, in whatever position they want you to be perceived as holding and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then done a whole, you know, social media uh, take stream, down. Yeah. Know, take down, yeah, about, mm-hmm. uh, about what a bigot you are or... Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's definitely some, like, some, again, ang- angry people or, or criticism of specific aspects of the show. But what's really wild, I mean, like, if you go and look at, um, like, the reviews on Apple Podcasts, for instance... It's so amazing. Like, I mean, and I don't just mean like all positive. Um, There's, there's, it's just really thoughtful. Even the criticism is very thoughtful. Even people who said, you know, like, I I really wish you had done this. I wish you'd covered detransitioners. I wish you'd covered, you know, a a trans person who was not allowed to transition, you know, as, as an adolescent and who had to, so like, there's people who had all kinds of really thoughtful criticism, but it's, it's not just like, I absolutely expected to get like review bombed, if you know what I mean. Mm, mm. Like before the shows, you know, even like the, just only the trailers out and everybody gives it one star reviews yeah, and, yeah, and tries yeah, to yeah. tank it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it got up to number three on both Apple and Spotify. Um, and, mm. and again, the reviews are incredibly positive and the feedback has been so positive. So I, I'm really amazed. And that's, again, it's one of the things that I, I'm really heartened by it. And a lot of, I mean, a, a lot of the feedback has been do more. <laughs> and like, yeah. like I, I wish there were many more episodes and you know, certainly the topic is, is rich enough for it. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to do, but I'm, I'm really, um, really grateful and, and gratified that people took the time to listen, to really listen is, and to give thoughtful feedback. Is there another culture war issue? Is there another topic where people aren't listening to each other and they're piling on and functioning in kind of thought silos that you notice? I'm sure there's lots of them. I'm not, yeah, I'm not quite sure I'm done with this one yet because I, there are so many, 
aspects of, I mean, the story, like, again, we, we did so much reporting over the course of two years, and it was kind of painful, the amount of material that we had to leave on the cutting room floor, and just like, you know, very interesting um, aspects of these questions. So I, I, I haven't quite, I haven't quite let it go yet, but I'll, uh, <laughs> I'm definitely mm. open to looking at similar things, because I, I do think this is, it's, it's a feature of the kind of polarized world that we are living in. And um, I, I just, I can't help, and, and it's probably, um, you know, just a, a result of my experience leaving Westboro. I just have profound faith in our ability to, to kind of bridge these divides that seem totally impassable. I mean, for me to change from the kind of very hardline fundamentalist you know, person that I was. I, I was incredibly dedicated to Westboro's ideology. It, I, I grew up in it. I started protesting when I was five. It was my whole family. I had every reason in the world to be there and to stay there. And the fact that real good faith conversation um, was able to bring me out of that still totally blows my mind. You know, I, I look at these old videos of myself and I, I it shocks me that I am still, that I'm not still on a protest um, you know, on a picket line in Kansas. Um, and how yeah, long just, did it take? How long did it take, Megan, from the 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 moment where you sort of first noticed an inkling of, hmm, maybe this person has a point, to you being able to slough it off altogether? Um, well, so it, it's it's definitely a process. I would say a year and a half or so um, from like the first conscious doubt like realization that we could be wrong about something. And until do you remember the, what triggered that? I do, yeah. It was one of those conversations on Twitter. Um, I was uh, talking to a um, a Jewish man that I had targeted. He was one of the first people that I targeted after I joined Twitter and started tweeting for the church. Um, and he was asking me, you know, he would ask questions about our picket signs, and I was asking him questions about you know Jewish theology and trying to show him all the reasons why Jews were wrong and why they were wrong. And were you speaking from the church's official account or um, it, as you? It was in my name. Yeah. I, I only tweeted about church stuff, basically. I mean, it was it was very much... I was the only one of the Westboro members on Twitter for a long time. Um, so it wasn't the, the official Westboro account um, for that reason. I mean, I didn't feel like I could speak for the church. Um, but did the church have a Twitter account at that time? No, no. Right. And so, so you, I, affect, you functionally were. Exactly. Yeah. And so I was, and I, and I was like running, you know, almost everything that I posted on Twitter, like by my mom for quite a while after I, and so my mom was the church spokesperson. So, um, that's the dynamic there. But so in, in these conversations with this, with this Jewish guy, um, David Abbottball, who is so wonderful, like, like both like able to be critical of what we believed, but also attributing good motives to me personally. And, and like understanding that the, I was born and raised in it. And so anyways, like he, he gets to this one and it's going to, it seems like a very small point of theology. We were talking about a sign. Uh, he was asking about a sign that we had that called for the death penalty for gay people. Um, and, you know, in, in quoting, you know, citing these passages from the book of Leviticus. Um, and, you know, he said, but what about your mom? And I was like, what about my mom? He said, well, didn't she have a child out of wedlock? And isn't that a sin? that also deserves the death penalty according to the, according to the Bible. Mm. Uh, and I kind of froze, you know, for a minute and I was like, well, you know, we're not, we're not cast because in he, he quoted that, that um, verse about let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Mm. And I said, well, we're not casting stones. We're preaching words. 
And that was like, that was always the, the answer we gave to that um, when people would accuse us of casting stones. And he pointed out the very obvious, which is that he said, no, but you're advocating that the, go- that the government cast stones. And the combination of him making these points, um, like the realization that if you cut somebody off, I mean, if you kill somebody, you cut off the opportunity to repent and be forgiven, which is the whole foundation of our theology is, is we preach repentance. And if my mom had been killed, my beloved family would not exist. Mm. Um, and it was such a, I mean, uh, can I say mind fuck? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a mind fuck because I come from a family of lawyers. Like they are incredibly smart, incredibly analytical. We spent so much time memorizing the Bible. And like I had literally never in all my years, like come to a point where, you know, so, even when somebody maybe seemed to have a good point, um, I would go to my family, I would go to my parents um, or one of my aunts and uncles and they would have an answer that from the Bible that would satisfy me. And this was just, there was no answer. This was, it was just hypocrisy. Um, and that was, that eventually that was like, that was the thread that eventually unraveled the entire, the entire thing. Because once you realize that we are not, as I was saying earlier, the, the ultimate arbiters of divine truth, that we are fallible human beings and that our understanding, um, you know, can, can be wrong. Um, you, I was able to question other things as they came up mm. that seemed inconsistent. Whereas before I would have thought, oh, there's, there's just something wrong with me. Like I, I'm just not spiritual enough. I don't understand. So it, it essentially gave me some small bit of confidence in my own thinking, my own ability to, to understand the truth, um, that I, that I could question. Um, and it was, it's so wild. It's so, it's so wild to someone who's never experienced that state of mind to, to think that some logical, I mean, it's, it's really heartening and to hear you put it that way to, to think that there's just some expression of logic that can unravel the entire edifice because the whole edifice from the outside seems so absurd. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. so like, you know, the conclusion is that, uh, you know, giving the electric chair to a gay person is bad because it, uh, you know, blocks off their opportunity for redemption in the future. And the Bible says that we all have to be have redemption. Like mm-hmm. that. Hang on, you don't need the heart, second half of that <laughs> sentence. You're, you're putting gay people into electric chairs. Like that is so primarily bad. Right. That is, like, yeah. It's, it seems so why? obvious. Yeah, the the idea that you need some Talmudic rabbinical like examination of logic, but I mean, whatever gets you there, you know, right. And I, I, I should say, like, it, 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 there is, you know, I, I mentioned this actually to to Rowling at the end of the series. You know, the the two things, like, I I never thought of myself as just having blind faith. I asked, you know, a, so many questions. Um, you know, I was constantly examining the Bible and expositors and reading the Bible with my family and examining other people's beliefs, and so it, it never felt like simple blind belief, um, but. I never questioned the two most basic premises of our beliefs. And that was that the Bible is the literal infallible word of God and therefore unquestionable. Um, and that Westboro's interpretation of it was the only real, true, valid understanding of it. Um, and that, I mean, it's really funny because you say, you know, prima facie, like it's, it's, it was just bad. It should have been obvious. But like when you're raised in this environment where you cannot, you cannot, truly question 
you you cannot truly um yeah cast into doubt these mm. things that your everybody believes and that you will be punished in certain ways in some ways it was physical in some ways it was you know social ostracism if you if you were to um walk disorderly as the church would put it mm. um the ways all of the social enforcement mechanisms to make sure that you trusted and believed and followed their edicts and distrusted, mistrusted yourself. You know, my mom would would quote this Bible verse about, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and who can know it? And so it's this this sense that you cannot trust your own mind. And so even as the, the that ideology was unraveling, I had this sense of, you know, I'm I'm kind of clinging to the things that are so clearly inconsistent and hypocritical and and at, at that point, I, I cared very much that it was contrary to certain Bible passages. Um, and then at the other, you know, but then my mind would like boomerang to the other side and think like, oh my God, this is Satan whispering in my ear and God is testing me and I am failing this test. Mm. And like the, the, like you, I just felt like I was losing my mind. I mean, and of mind. course, of course I get that it's not obvious. It's, there is nothing innately prima facie about the idea that you shouldn't put gay people in an electric chair. I, I regard that as prima facie because I'm a product of my particular environment in this particular time in this particular place. If I was born in ISIS, if I was a, a child of an ISIS bride, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I wouldn't think the same way that I do. And, you know, I, we all take it for granted that slavery is bad because we're not born in an era when slavery was the norm. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to accept. But the reality is if we were, the vast majority of us would think that it was totally fine. And there are things that we're doing now that in 200 years, people will look back on and shake their heads in disbelief, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and that we think are totally okay. So, I mean, I, I get yeah. it. I have a, a spirit of generosity towards the blinders that everybody have has just, you know, it's, it's no different just because you're in a minority and the blinders seem weird to people who are in the majority who have equally ridiculous blinders, but those blinders are more widespread. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in, in once JK Rowling responded to you and said, yes, she'd do it. Just what was the next logistical step? Like, where did you meet her? Uh, at her house, actually. Um, in Scotland, yeah. I mean, so we had a couple of um, conversations on Zoom um, beforehand, and were those like? Did they feel like auditions? <laughs> it was actually. Um, it was really interesting because, like, the first one, it was uh, just me and her and um, one person from her team, and I went into that thinking like, "Oh my god, I'm gonna have to like." pitch my heart out. I've never done anything like this before. I've never, um, I felt like unequal to the task, but it wasn't like Mm. that at all. She was very easy to talk to. Um, and yeah, it just felt like a normal conversation I would have with any of my friends about, you know, and was that being recorded on the record for the show or was that just a background? No, it was just a background. Yeah. I was just, just meeting her. And at that point I didn't know, I mean, I hadn't, I mean, she hadn't said actually that she was going to do it. Um, I see. And yeah, it was, it was just meeting her for the first time. And it was, um, like I said, just, just very easy and comfortable. And also of course, weird as hell because yeah. <laughs> in the back of your mind, it's like, wow, I can't believe this yeah. is happening. Um, but yeah, then, then the next, uh, we w- actually went to, um, just a little over a year ago now, um, went to Scotland for, for the first time and, Met at her and house. How did that offer come about? Did she did she email? Did she text you? Did she send an owl with a um, parchment <laughs> I, in its mouth? It was the member of her team who was on the call with us, actually. Um, and yeah, it was just 
a, it was just like it just you know matter of logistics um right we would go you know one day and you know set everything up and then we would record for i think we recorded for like two two and a half hours um the the following two days um and then we were going to come back a couple months later um to do a second set of interviews after we had spoken to you know some uh, other people mm-hmm. i had never actually interviewed anybody um before i sat down with rolling Amazing. um and well, you're a natural. It's not. It's not easy. <clears throat> it's not easy to make it sound like a normal conversation when you're doing it for the first time. But it does. Well, you. I was going to say it was. I mean, she. she it was really interesting because, like, I I had had the impression, you know, that you know, that if if you look up, you know, there's there's articles about her. There's this one in the New Yorker called Muggle March, I think, and I I read it. I made the mistake of reading it uh, before I went, and you know, basically the idea is like, oh, she's incredibly controlling and. That's essentially the, you know, um, the, the thrust of it. And I just, I didn't find her that way at all. She was very, um, very open. Like I, um, you hear in the show, like the the opening question that I ask her might seem a little strange. Um, and that's because it was, it was supposed to be like a throwaway question, just like a warm up. Um, and her answer was so thoughtful. I was like, okay, we have to include this. And also (laughs) I am definitely not smart enough to be doing this. What was Um, it? Um, the one about um, magic, like why do you, why do humans like stories about magic, essentially? And and um, and her, yeah, her response was just very thoughtful. Um, and then the second question I asked was, you know, I, I and I thought I would essentially, I thought I got the impression somehow I don't remember exactly how that she didn't want to talk about the early days so much. Um, you know, the kind like she's kind of alludes to it in that essay um, about her her history with um, domestic violence, the, the abuse of her. Um, first husband. And so I, I barely got half the question out and she just essentially, she kind of like nodded and launched into this story. Um, and it was, it was incredible. She, so I think the fact that it really was a conversation and she really was very open and, and ready to talk mm. about everything. Um, I, I was very lucky to have. And uh, so I still want to paint, I still want you to paint the picture of the behind the scenes here. So you, you know, the, the, the person on her side says, why don't you guys come over? And you find dates that work. And so you mm-hmm. and, what, a producer, you book your tickets to, what, Heathrow and then get a flight to somewhere. And, <laughs> no, and actually, where, we would you, direct to Edinburgh, actually. Well, nonstop to Edinburgh. I didn't know that even existed. Okay, so you fly into <laughs> Edinburgh. And then you're, what do you get? You get the you get the courtyard by Marriott in Edinburgh <laughs> or something. And, like, it just seems so... To, we had to get, like, so all this equipment. Like, yeah, we had to, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we had to get and, all this... And is, <laughs> like, is she living? Does she live in the in the center of town? Does she live out on a she lives in the state? No, no, she lives in the city. Um, and yeah, it's. I mean, it was just a lovely. I mean, it's it's as I said on the show, it's technically it's technically a castle, but it's not like this massive like thing that you like. Uh, not like Edinburgh Castle, for instance. Like a moderate, uh, moderate. No, it's it's, it's, it's like a cozy little. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's just not it's just not huge. It's like this little and is she, stone is she house. Known yeah. Is she sort of known by her community? Does she walk outside and people say, hello, or, you know, is know. she not, a- not able to do that? I, I don't know. I would guess, I mean, I'm sure she has to be very careful about security concerns, especially. I mean, she she did talk about that on the show, too. Um, yeah. Um, especially, I think, maybe over the past few years. But um, she, I don't know, like I said, it was just a, a lovely thing. Like, we went and knocked. Mm. <laughs> like Knocked on the door of her humble little <laughs> castle. What do you see when you get inside her humble little ca- castle? What's it like? 
um, like low ceilings. Like it's, it's, it's lovely. It's old. Like I think, I, yeah, I, I can't remember how old it is. Hundreds of years old. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we just went, like she has this little, it was in her drawing room. There's like this wall of books and she had arranged the books in a like rainbow uh, pattern oh, and which she had done that over the course of the pandemic lockdown. Um, and yeah, it was just, it, you know, lovely. It was lovely. Also there, did you know there's very little air conditioning <laughs> in, in, in that part of Europe? Uh, was this in summer? Uh, it was, yeah, it was early June. And then the second time it was in uh, like mid August and it got quite warm. And also I was very, pre- I was pregnant. I was like five months pregnant the first time wow. and like eight months pregnant the second time. Um, and so it was all, it was, it was very, it was very, it was very interesting. Um, and it was really the weird thing. Sorry, I'm just going to like, this is a, a weird little aside. Um, I realized when I was um, like, but I realized, okay, we're going like we, we've gotten the go ahead. Like we've made the plans. We're like actually, you know, purchase the tickets. And I suddenly remembered that when I was, um, while I was still at Westboro, um, about a year before I left the church, um, there was this profile of me in the Kansas City Star, and I'd spent a ton of time with a reporter, and, and he asked me at one point if I could go anywhere in the world, where would I go? And I said, Scotland, because I had, you know, I have some Scottish ancestry, and, um, and you know, he was kind of lamenting the fact that I would never get a chance to go there as a member of Westboro because so many things about our lives were, you know, there were all these things that we were not allowed to do. Um, and just how weird it was that the, the version of me who said, you know, at the end of that article, you know, has me saying, I'm all in, you know, I'm, I'm never going to leave Westboro like that, that this mm-hmm. would be the reason that I ended up going to Scotland. <laughs> um, just a very strange, the world and life just seem very strange to me sometimes. It, it seems impossible and it makes me incredibly grateful. You, you talked about, um, you know. Your, your twins. How old are your twins? Five. Um, my daughter is, um, she'll be five in, in a few months. And Aww. it just seems totally, I, I'm, I'm just very amazed at this life and, and very grateful that I, that I get to live in. Yeah. I mean, when you say the world and life are amazing, the world and life are amazing in the abstract, but your world and your life are uniquely amazing as well, Megan, <laughs> <laughs> just in the trajectory that they've taken and the extremes that they've experienced. Um, and so what was? why wouldn't you be able to travel as a member of the Westboro Baptist Church? You can't get on a plane or you can't go outside the States or what? What's we, the yeah, we, we were afraid to leave the protection of the First Amendment because the things that we did and said are illegal in many places. And right. we essentially you know, just, just feared... Uh, what I mean, and there were there were certain places like Sweden, where and actually the UK too. So I, yeah. I, I think there's a couple of people, uh, individuals, explicitly banned, including my mom. Um, and so yeah, like we, we, it was it was mostly a like um, self protection thing. You know, we, we were not going to expose ourselves, um, and we weren't going to go anywhere that we couldn't preach according to our you know understanding of what was necessary. This was this was our duty and our obligation. What was your first overseas trip? Uh, that's a good question. I went to visit my sister in Finland and, uh, cause she was, she did, uh, a study abroad semester about a year after, or two years after we left. Um, and it was so insane. Like I, I actually, this, that was, that experience was, um, the thing that actually got me writing, um, what would eventually become my book because mm. I went couch surfing. Um, we went couch surfing and, you know, like up in Lapland, Finnish Lapland and, 
it just so happened, like, first of all, like this, this absolutely insane thing happened where we end up like, you know, biking in, in the pitch black, freezing cold to this cabin, you know, in the middle of you know, right by this lake in the middle of a forest and like seeing the Northern Lights. And it was such, such an incredible thing. But then the craziest thing was that the guy that we couch surf with, who absolutely seemed like an axe murderer when we first met him, <laughs> and not just because like he steps out like into the like a uh, floodlight outside of the shed and he is holding an axe in his hand. <laughs> you can see the silhouette of this guy. Absolutely terrifying. Um, He's like, but this is Lapland. We all have axes here. This <laughs> exactly. does not mean I'm an axe murderer. <laughs> exactly. It was like, it was, he said it was to check the ice and, the, and you know, to, you know, like to make sure it was like safe for us to cross the lake. Um, but anyway, it was, it was so crazy because that guy was actually, so I'm the third of 11. He was, um, he was, I think number 12 of 14 and it also comes from an extremist Lutheran sect up in Lapland. And he's, wow. he's one of 12 of the 14 who left. Um, yeah. And so like having, you know, at that point, you know, I, I had been gone for less than two years and it, it, you know, still, I was starting to understand that even though Westboro, you know, is kind of an extreme version of, of certain beliefs, like there are so many groups like Westboro who are certain that they have the truth and it is unquestionable and everybody else must live according to the edicts of their, you know, the conscience of this, this small group. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and it was just really amazing to, to realize like just this random guy that we, that we found on, you know, couch has surfing. Has yeah, this super parallel weird. story. Mm -hmm. uh, and had you traveled, did you travel much in between that trip and going to Scotland? Um, yes. Um, yeah, I went, yeah, cause that was in 2014. I, I mean, I went to Germany and the Netherlands and I had been to the UK, um, and actually Australia. I did a tour of Australia and New Zealand with Louis Theroux just oh, before the pandemic. Um, so yeah, I've, I, and to Norway, I got married, I got married in Nor Norway. My Aww. husband's family is, uh, his ancestry is Norwegian. And we went back to the, the farm where his surname comes from, um, and anyway, yeah, just, I, it's amazing. I mean, again, like there's some, like many parts of my brain that are just absolutely floored. <laughs> like how fabulous. I mean, I just want, yeah. I'm just wondering what it was like to, to be in Finland and outside of the States and in a place so different where just different people in different experiences, different environment, different climate. Mm -hmm. It must've blown your mind. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, and, and just, I think one of the things, though, is that the smallness and the humanness of my family became a lot more clear as Gosh. I started to explore the world. Um, and and I, I mean that in a good way, you know, like uh, there were things about my family that, you know, it, it was hard not to think at first that we, again, were just maybe uniquely horrible people and realizing that the things that made us what we were were very common and very human. I mean, they had a very strange manifestation in some ways, um, again, but, um, and, and, you know, honestly, again, sometimes uniquely horrible in, in certain manifestations, but, but the impulses themselves, the black and white thinking, you know, the, the absolute certainty that our side is right and the other side is evil and, you know, Groupthink, confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, all of these things um, were, it, it was just, it made me feel, again, a lot of, a lot of hope. Um, mm. It's almost like a, 
a larger version of the growing up that all of us do when we are no longer kids and realize that our parents aren't gods, that they're, they're just people, that they're mm-hmm. fallible. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a realization that you have in your teens and you go, wow, they're just doofuses like me. You know, they're just people, they're, they're kids like me who grew big mm-hmm. and they, they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the same with the whole world. I mean, I, I often yeah. say like when you're a kid, you think that the world is, is built with a reason and a kind of a purpose. Even if you're not religious, you think there are grownups running the shop somewhere, you know, and conspiracy mm-hmm. theorists still do think this. It's, there's something reassuring about there being even an evil cabal of people who are running everything. And it's, it's quite shocking when you come of age in your, in your teens or early 20s and you go, the whole thing is, no one knows what's <laughs> going on. This is held together with duct tape and twine. This is just a bunch of idiots running around and there's no, one, no one's got an eye on the shop. No one knows yeah. what's going on. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really funny. This is also something I think about all the time, like with my daughter. Like how, how can I explain to her up front that I am an idiot, that I don't know, I don't know everything. <laughs> don't. Like, I am cling, to your, <laughs> cling to your goddess, you know, status <laughs> as long as you can. <laughs> I just like, I don't want her to be like totally floundering if she, when, when she comes to finally realize that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And then when you have heroes, you know, to bring us back to rolling, this is someone who has created these castles in the sky of imagination for you when you were little and you've gone through the the tales that she has been able to spin and then you get there to Edinburgh and you're going into her little hot, uh, <laughs> low-ceilinged, humble little castle. It was castle. lovely. It was a lovely little what, place. <laughs> what, are you, what are you feeling? Like is your, is your heart beating? Are you, is it surreal or are you just surreal. trying to focus on what you're going to ask her? It's, it's surreal. I, it's surreal. I mean I, I was trying to just be, you know, in, in the moment to notice to notice what it was, what it was like, what was happening. Um, and to just, you know, again, I I was, like I said, I told you, I was a huge fan of the books and, you know, loved, um, there's, there's so many things that she, I mean, again, even just sitting there and listening to her talk and realizing like, she's, she's a very, um, she's an incredibly thoughtful person. She, it, it seems like, again, you ask the smallest question and she will spin out this, entire beautiful you know just just well well spoken and articulate and um just interesting like somebody who's lived a very interesting life that is very different from mine um but i mean ultimately too she is a human being i mean she's describing very human experiences um and she said that actually at one point in the show you know she says like um i couldn't have written these books if i wasn't a human being um and, you know, subject to the same kind of human foibles that all of us are and listening to her kind of, you know, self-scrutiny and, and the process that she went through. It's all just just very – the whole time, I mean, the, the thing that I feel so much – I mean, with this and so much of the work that I do is I just – I feel very grateful and very privileged um, to be able to, like, to work on things that are that – I, that I think are important that, that could do good in the world – um, and, and that are just fascinating. Like I, 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 I'm, again, I'm, I'm just absolutely amazed, um, and s- just struck that, that I get to do this. Mm. I want to talk to you about the idea of, of being on the right side of history, which I, I think there's, there's a, there's a kind of an idea that is latent in, uh, in 
across progressive circles at the moment that it's too hard to dig into the details of big culture war questions. So I'm just going to pick the side that I think is on the right side of history. And I, I want to get your thoughts on that, but I'll, I'll do that for the premium subscribers. So, I, so I'll, I'll bid farewell to, uh, to everyone who's listening to the free version of the podcast. To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen, and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for Uncomfortable Conversations in the Substack. 